Molo Sambunani, Molo and welcome to the Big Daddy Limited Show, the podcast edition, which is of course syndicated on High FM. Welcome to the show, guys. It is a fantastic Friday morning. It's Friday morning. And yeah, I'm hoping some of you guys are running around in preparation for the day of rest guys welcome to the show as we just work out the kinks of that feedback it will disappear in a moment um my name is big daddy liberty and you are of course on the bdl show remember the show always begins by um having a conversation of what are the big news items in the week what what got us talking what got us chatting what got us angry maybe what got us sad um, we'll look after. We'll look at those issues, of course, after the first break. And uh, today, I have a very special guest, someone who I think, uh, you know, if if you are a reader of the Daily Friend uh, news site, that's www.dailyfriend.co.za, um, someone who you might actually are quite aware of. Um, I'm talking, of course, about uh, Mr. Terence Corrigan. He is the project manager at the Institute of Race Relations, and he wrote a very interesting piece uh, this week, which brought to the fore I think a, a news item that had disappeared a little bit, uh, you know, sort of buried by the preoccupation of COVID-19. And he, he, he raised a piece about the, the, the spectre that is now being brought back onto the table of expropriation without compensation. And in this piece, he made some important arguments around property rights. So we're going to have that conversation uh, as the main interview segment. Uh, that's after 20 minutes past nine. And um, yeah, as I said, guys, a very, very interesting uh, news week uh, that we've had. And of course, on the show, we always end it off by anticipating what the news week ahead might look like. And of course... Um, what has become a tradition on the Big Daddy Liberty Show, the podcast, uh, we, we look at who the mumish of the week is, you know, who, who uh, had the loser play or the loser action of the week, the mumish of the week. So we'll, you can look forward to that at the end of the show. So let me take my first ad break. And after the break, we'll have a discussion around what made the news week uh, this past week. You're back on the Big Daddy Liberty Show. Um, man, oh man, has it not been an interesting week when you look at some of the issues that have dominated the news cycle. Some of them are a bit more recent, and I'm going to begin, as you heard maybe in the news segment uh, just before the BDL show, you know, the, the 10 million rand scooter ambulance flop that the Eastern Cape uh, Education Department has, has basically um, embarked on. I mean... Any sane South African who saw that when there's a whole bunch of pomp and ceremony at the launch of this thing uh, could literally see that this was a, a non-starter. The idea that you can have, you know, in a country like ours, by the way, we've, we've often got to remind ourselves that South Africa is not a poor country. We really aren't. Um, insofar as the resources that this government um, takes in by way of taxes, it, it should, you know, if we had a, a clean and uh, proper administration be able to provide world-class services, including, in this instance, on EMS, Emergency Medical Services. I mean, if you can have a community-based initiative, like Hatsola, for example, run a world-class service, why, 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 why should we not expect the same level of quality, the same level of, uh, you know, sort of uh, 21st century equipment um, and and safe equipment being used by the state. I mean, it, it didn't make sense. Why are we resorting 
to using scooters as a means of transporting and ferrying uh, patients. It just, it, it really didn't make sense. And for anybody who was watching that launch would have just looked at this and, and sort of sighed. A, a, um, because, you know, you could see that this was an absolute non-starter. Even though the Minister of Health, um, Dr. Zulim Kize, you know, at the time was lauding this as fantastic because, you know, these scooters, he said, could make it into the rural areas and expand, um, you know, the primary health care network. You know, we, we ask ourselves the questions, is this really the best means of doing that? So now we hear that the, the 10.1 million rand contract uh, involved the procurement of essentially 100 scooters, and each of these scooters cost 94,000 rand, and they came with a 6,000 rand maintenance bill to them. It just didn't make sense. So, again, another, sim uh, another example, rather, of the state embarking on fruitless, in my view, at least, fruitless expenditure. Like, you, you could have spent that kind of money actually buying proper ambulances that are well kitted out, or even training more EMS staff and hiring more EMS staff, which are critically needed in some parts of the country where there's a shortage of this kind of thing. So, again, this whole thing is just shrouded in incompetence. And it, at some point, we need to, as citizens, say, you know, we need to draw the line and say, come on. This cannot continue. You cannot continue wasting resources that are sorely needed by mostly poorer South Africans in this country, as was the case here. But let me move on um, to, I suppose, the, the, the major news item that still dominates the headlines to a large extent, and that's COVID-19. You know, South Africa has seen its cases climb to 238,000 uh, or just over 238,000 cases, basically, with uh, more than 13,000 new cases just in the last 24 hours. Um, now, if you if you listen to the, the mainstream punditry around this, you know, people will posit this as like a scary thing, a, um, you know, oh my goodness, we, we need to panic about this. And I'm like, no, actually, no. Surely this is exactly what we were told from the very beginning would likely happen. You know, if you have a highly contagious respiratory type disease, you know, akin to a flu in terms of its spread, how it spreads that is, um, and what it affects, the lungs, um, and akin to something like even tuberculosis in terms of it being a respiratory type disease, then surely it stands to reason that it will spread quite rapidly. And, you know, we were told, of course, by the state and all the experts that, you know, the lockdown was in preparation of the state, at least, preparing itself to be able to deal with the inevitable rise in cases. So to me, it stands to reason that this is what would happen. And if we're saying the vast majority of people who get this, um, you know, have mostly mild symptoms and the vast majority of people um, recover from this, then it again, it stands to reason that we will see these sort of numbers. Um, and I don't think we need to panic, which brings me to, I think, a massive news item this week, which, in my opinion sought to do nothing else other than to sow panic, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Um, you guys would have uh, read, of course, that the uh, Gauteng uh, uh, provincial government, through its health MEC, that's a, a one Andy Lemasugu, in comments to the press this week, basically said you know, that, that the provincial government was digging 1.5 million graves for this virus. Why would you say that? I, I just don't understand why you would say that. When, as things stand in this country, the death toll in South Africa nationally is only 3,720, you know, and, 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 and it's nowhere near, it'll, nowhere, it'll be nowhere near, excuse me, reaching a figure like one point something million people. 
Um, and then, again, let me add more context to this because people say, oh, you're just trying to, um, you know, downplay the seriousness of this. Yes, absolutely, you know, it is a very serious thing, but facts matter. Data matters. Globally, that's the entire world, only about 550,000 people have died from this. So on what basis would the Gauteng provincial government um, assert that it needs to prepare um, the likelihood or the possibility of as much as 1.5 million grave sites? That's nearly 10% of the Gauteng population. I mean, there's something fundamentally wrong with the way in which we're communicating um, this pandemic to people. We're alarming and we're scaring people, as opposed to arming citizens with good data, with good facts, um, and of course context, which is incredibly important, so that people can actually make decisions around this. Because you now have a situation where there are political opportunists who are climbing into this issue and sowing panic on one or other issues that are related to COVID. And I, I must segue to the next issue, which was the, the politics of now the school reopening. It's become an absolute political playing ball, where opposition parties and some formations, even within the ANC, are forming ranks um, to basically scaremonger to a large extent. I mean, the issue... Um, an issue should have been left to what is, uh, or rather, an issue that should have been left um, to what the scientific literature tells us has now been pounced upon by politicians. I mean, on the science of it, someone like the basic education minister, that's uh, Angie Motecha, is actually right in reopening schools. She's, she's absolutely, in terms of what the science says, she's absolutely right to say, uh, you know, schools should open. Why? Because children are of low risk, we now see this, and with the appropriate knowledge, and precautions, they are not spreaders of the COVID uh, uh, virus. And, and in, in reality, kids and children are, are, will be fine. <coughs> Excuse me. Children will be fine. Yet you now have the likes, because this is being turned into politics, you have the likes of the EFF, um, pockets of our own party, the ANC, that's specifically the ANC, ANC Women's League, and the military, um, the or Military Veterans Association, and the former leader of the DA, that's Musi Maimani, who now leads the, the upstart, One Direction. Ah, excuse me, I meant to... <laughs> he leads the One SA movement, rather. Um, they're all describing, essentially, sending children to school as some sort of death sentence, and it's absolute hyperbole. It's absolutely unnecessary. It is scaring parents who, right now, rightly so, of course, um, are worried, but should be assured, based on what the evidence tells us, what the data tells us, what the science tells us, that actually their children will be fine, as long as there are good precautions in place. And it seems to me, maybe as a last thought before I go to my break, that the courts get it. The courts, when they're presented with the evidence, by and large, and when they're presented with the data, they get it. Because recently, as a last issue, um, the, the North Gauteng High Court on Monday ordered that all private preschools may actually Im open immediately. They may open immediately. This is, of course, Judge Hans Fabricius. I hope you remember him. Uh, he was involved in the Collins Corsa case. Um, ordered that all private preschool institutions offering early childhood development services, that's grade R and lower, are actually entitled to reopen immediately. This is a case that was brought by the trade union uh, Solidarity's Occupational Guild for Social Workers and their school support centre against the Department of Social Development regarding the opening and the reopening, rather, of primary, private nursery schools. Which, for me, this judgment is important because it brings the facts, it brings the data into everyday policy issues, into everyday life issues. So that parents who are now, for example, being told that they can go back to work under Level 3 can actually also have the ability to send their kids 
um, somewhere safe during the day. And preschools are, for me, as long as they comply with all the guidelines, a safe place. Because again, the data and the facts matter on these issues. So those are the issues that made me talk and made me think this week. Um, I'm going to go to a quick ad break. After my break, as I mentioned, I have Mr. Terence Corrigan from the Institute of Race Relations. We chat um, EWC and we chat property rights with Terence. We'll see you after these short messages. We're going to have a, t- a conversation with uh, Terence Corrigan from the IRR, as I said. And the issue is EWC. Um, that's expropriation without compensation. An issue which I think fell on the back burner a little bit because of our preoccupation with the COVID-19 pandemic and all the issues around the lockdown. But it's such a serious issue because it speaks to the future of the country um, and how we relate as citizens to our ability to say that we own something, that we have property rights over things. And remember, the Section 25 of the Constitution um, defines property very broadly. It isn't just an issue of land. Uh, You know, the very radio that you're listening to me um, on is your your property, the car you're sitting in, uh, the home you have is property. The, the wallet in your pocket right now is property. And essentially, preparation of our compensation gives or would likely give a politician the, the ability to confiscate that from you and not have to uh, compensate you for it. But again, don't take it from me. Let me hear from my guest himself. Terence, good morning. You're on the Big Daddy Liberty Show. Are you with us? Good morning. Good morning, Sitley. I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, Terence, welcome to the show. Um, Terence, you know, we, we've been having this conversation, and I want us to jump straight into it um, over the next sort of uh, 20 minutes or so. We've been having this conversation on the BDL show for quite a while about the dangers of essentially politicians uh, giving themselves more powers to be able to pick winners and losers in a society, um, and often doing mm-hmm. so with powers that give them arbitrary means to do that. Uh, EWC, Terence, for those who may, maybe are uninitiated on it, what is expropriation mm. without compensation? Well, look, uh, <clears throat> expropriation happens pretty much in every society. There are times when, you're, when you know, government may need to build a road or whatever, um, and it uh, essentially takes over some, some private asset. Or technically, um, it's a bit more complicated in law, but uh, uh, to take over a, over a public asset from, let's say, another government department. Um, now, as I say, that it's not something I like, but it is a, it, it is a reality in modern societies. Uh, the question, though, is that um, if a um, if, if there is some sort of public good that must be achieved, it is not just for one person to 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 bear the costs of that. Uh, expropriation without compensation wants to turn that uh, that arrangement on its head and say, well, the government uh, wants to set up a new system, um, uh, a, a new system of uh, uh, of law in which um, your property may be may be seized without um, uh, without you receiving anything for it. Um, this is look, this has been going on um, in the background for. Uh, uh, for at least a decade, and I would say actually going back into the 1990s. What makes this, um, uh, what, is, what has raised the temperature on it has been since 2017, this has been the explicit, written, um, unadulterated position of the African National Congress. They passed it in the Nazareth Conference, and it's been phrased in, um, uh, in a language of land reform. But I assure you that um, when you talk, uh, when you introduce a change to uh, to, to to the uh, system of property holding, it is not going to be limited to to land. 
And something that um, I think has been um, has been very deliberately put out is the idea that this is about rural, unused farms, you know, somewhere in the northern Cape. Don't worry about it. Nothing to see here. Move on, folks. Um, my question, you know, whenever um, uh, whenever someone has confidently asserted this, I said, well, just 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 think about this rationally. Uh, what um, is more is more worth having a you know a derelict property um, uh, in a um, in a semi-desert region of the country, or a block of primary real estate in the middle of Santon, all of a sudden, uh, you know, the uh, <laughs> the mental calculus starts to change. <laughs> um, now, um, something that has also been put about, and you know, I've spoken to people both in South Africa and abroad. Well, South Africa has a very strong constitution and a strong legal system, so you know, surely whatever happens, uh, it, it can't be too much of a problem. And in fact, President Ramaphosa has repeatedly said it will be done within the constitution and the law. Aha. Mm. Uh-huh. But what this current drive is about is changing the constitution. In other words, it's like taking a game of Monopoly and you change a fundamental rule, saying, well, you don't need money to, to, you know, to, uh, uh, to acquire Yansmuts Avenue. Um, now, you, you, you can see that, that pretty much fundamentally mm. uh, changes the, term, uh, 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 the terms of playing that game. And this would, this would do likewise. It would remove the uh, large swathes of the possibility of a constitutional challenge. Mm, mm. Um, now, this isn't the end of the story. We also look at a new expropriation bill, yeah. um, which would uh, uh, change, let's say, the, the 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 technical mechanics of it. But on the constitutional thing, for a long time, it was um, it was put forward that this is about making. Uh, it, Explicit what is implicit, because you could argue that the Constitution already under certain circumstances would allow for a zero compensation taking. But what um, uh, what the what, what the ANC has been talking about since uh, since the beginning of this year, just before the pandemic struck, was that they wanted the Constitution change. Now, as I said, I just want to emphasize this is this this is the big rule book. They want that change to shift the responsibility for expropriation from the courts. Where you know you can appear with your lawyer and whatever and fight it to the executive. Mm-hmm. In other words, they want to fundamentally change the way the rules are structured. Uh, so this will, you know, not only um, uh, change the um, uh, change the, the sort of basis of a um, uh, of a legal challenge, but they want to remove a lot of it from the legal system entirely. Be very very afraid of what um, of, of of what comes from that. Absolutely, I, I think for a lot of people, um, for a lot of people, you know, the, the we, we now fully maybe understand, including maybe those who didn't before, um, the dangers of allowing politicians to give themselves powers that are almost unchecked. For instance, the, the lockdown is a good example of that, where we saw as South Africans what life under political rule to a large extent can look like. Um, and it wasn't pleasant. Um, you know, it wasn't pleasant to feel as though you have no recourse against a decision being made by an executive, which may seemingly be drunk on power. Um, but Terence, mm-hmm. you, you make such an important um, observation in this piece that you actually wrote this week um, on, on this particular issue, uh, which is you know, questions of, of the security of property um, are being raised by the idea of politicians who already have a track record of having tried to introduce dozens of attempts, you mentioned, to encroach on private property rights. Do you want to maybe mm. quickly talk to us about that? Yeah, look, um, you know, when, I say, uh, when I say that this is something that we're talking about uh, having a decade-long pedigree, you know, you can go back to, the, um, uh, to around 2007 when um, you started to see a concerted vilification of the idea of willing buyer, willing seller. Now, let me just point out 
that I would question whether this willing buyer, willing seller thing ever really existed. Mm. I think it's 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 not codified in, in law anywhere. It was a phrase that the government started to use. And I think the reason to frame, uh, framing it like that was to say, well, you know, uh, uh, we we are, you know, uh, uh, nice willing buyers, but, you know, it's these willing sellers who are trying to, you know, trying to screw us. Um, but that, that um, you know, is a, is a useful starting point. What you saw then was that the government um, uh, started to change the, um, uh, the, the, the conditions in which it was conducting land reform or land redistribution. Now, just um, a bit of background there. This is where, um, let's say, I'm, a, um, I'm an aspiring uh, black farmer. I have no historical claim to a particular piece of land, but, uh, you know, I want to get into the economy. So this was a program that was, uh, that was designed to um, uh, kind of affect those 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 shifts into um, uh, and to get uh, 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 to get aspirant farmers into the economy, and I, I just want to say I think this is a very very uh, very important and potentially very um, uh, very uh, lucrative program for the mm. country as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they did was that they started to um, uh, they they they. They changed the the conditions on which beneficiaries receive this land. It stopped being um, uh, being given as uh, as ownership, and started to be on the basis of tenancy. So That's the state, the you know, was hand, um, uh, yeah, was 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 retaining ownership, and the consequences of that, I think, have been disastrous. Uh, there's been quite a lot of research done on what um, uh, on what some of these projects look like. Mm. You see, you have a um, you have a a, a bureaucrat who. Uh, oversees this. Now, he probably has no experience in farming himself. Um, a family gets gets a plot of land, um, but the, your bureaucrat is kind of held responsible if that if that project goes belly up. So they are then they they're not inclined even to sign a lease. So they'll sign sort of caretaker agreements, which make it uh, illegal to do anything. You can't repair you can't repair your house. You can't repair the uh, 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 the fencing on the land, sure. um, and as for ownership, no, it's it's, it's just not going to happen. Um, you know, then you had the green paper in um, in in two thousand and eleven, and this was very very meaningful because it it spelt out these sort of um, uh, the the uh, the state centric nature. In fact, it said that they w- the state would kind of as a as an incentive um, allow substantial commercial operators to buy the land that they leased after they'd worked it to the satisfaction of your bureaucrat sure. for 50 uh, for 50 years. So in other words, you get it when you're 20 and the glorious day of your 70th birthday, you can go in and make an offer. Now That's they've crazy. changed those. Uh, yeah, absolutely insane. Now they've changed those, the, the, those periods slightly, but um, you know, everything was sort of built around this, you know, a, a, a Pretoria will provide or Pretoria will monitor uh, big brother, big brother is watching you. Mm. Um and you know, I don't know. Maybe if we had a, a Swedish or a Taiwanese bureaucracy, this would work. Uh, but we don't. You know, we kind of have the bureaucracy we have. Um, <laughs> We're trying to police open toe shoes, <laughs> and in this country. But well, yeah, no, um, yeah, no, no, absolutely. You see, I, and 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 I think I think what we're looking at here is a situation in which ideology has just overwhelmed pragmatism, um, mm. with a good dollop of incompetence thrown in. Um, you know, there, there there are some very good examples of um, uh, of of land reform around around the world. In the twentieth century, uh, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, very very good examples. Mm. What each of those did, though, was they transferred ownership. That's right. To your um uh, to your to uh, to your small farmer, they also 
it was also largely a case of you you had people who were really working like as tenants and they made them owners so it was essentially incentivizing the work they already they already, uh, they were already doing in South Africa, we have a problem with that because uh, for various reasons, and it's a very tragic history, a lot of that peasantry was destroyed. Mm. Um, you know, uh, there, there were attempts to kind of uh, to uh, uh, distribute farms to farm workers, which is a very, very mixed record. Um, th- there have been some successful cases, but, you know, generally speaking, what you're talking about there are people with an agricultural background, with a um, uh, with a high degree of of of, of trust among, amongst themselves, um, and you know they actually get to own the piece of land that they that they're working on, mm-hmm. um, and this just doesn't fit the uh, fit the ideological script. Um, so you know what I fear um, what I fear is likely to happen is that if this go if this goes through if this does become um, uh, become a thing as the current uh, 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 la- um, uh, linguistic terminology puts it mm. um, you know we'll we'll end up with a situation where essentially you destroy what what exists of much of the of the uh, agricultural economy you drive a lot of those skills out you are not you, there simply is no support to um uh, uh, to bring in new people even those who are who are enthusiastic and they can't make a go of it anyway because they're essentially farming as as civil servants under a bureaucratic class that has no clue what it's doing absolutely um and, and, and yeah, James, you know let me let me quickly interject because yeah. we've only got about uh, 3 minutes before the ad break yeah, sure. i will have you on uh, right. afterwards again uh, for the last 10 minutes sure. of our chats but there's something mm-hmm. you raised in this piece which is critically important and y- yeah. y- it almost juxtaposes against what you've just said now the idea that you know we're not uh, the, the intentions of a lot of the policy and the assault really on section 25 of the constitution by by the political elites if i can phrase it that way is not to accord people ownership but really to make them in a sense a serf or a a, a tenant on on, yeah. on, on, on the land yes. now juxtapose yes. this with with this this uh, this wave of sentiment where people say oh no they'll say you know president ramaphosa is from the business community he understands Assumingly, the, the value of ownership and giving people, um, you know, a, a, the ability to to form a business in this case using land. Um, y- yet you make the case that no, actually, Ramaphosa isn't your 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 knight in in, in shining armor in this regard, is he? No, look, uh, um, I think that 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 first of all, to put too much um, uh, faith in one person is always is always a mistake, mm. irrespective of, of of what he may personally think. Um, I, you know, he's 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 one person in the system. Secondly, um, c- coming out of business, well, you know, um, his, his business career, I would say, was mediated very much by his political correct um, uh, 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 connections. Um, yeah. You know, uh, I, look, I, 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 don't, I don't I don't say that is a that uh, uh, that is condemnation, but I don't see in prison from opposer a um, uh, an entrepreneur. And the third thing, and I think this goes for um, this goes for you know every business person who's gone into politics, you know, whether it's Donald Trump or Hamid Mashaba, the, the incentives functioning of business and the incentives in politics are very different. And I would That's say right. that for President Trump opposer, his big his big incentive um, is is about keeping his party together, and this is a this is a party decision. I think we have to uh, uh, we have to keep that um, uh, keep that very much in mind. Mm. Absolutely. Terence, I'm, I'm going to have to go to our break. Um, but after the sure. break, I'm going to ask you three distinct questions, <clears throat> including then yep. what the IRR proposes as being the ideal for actually, um, you know, achieving the goal of, of, of um, 
land reform and really strengthening property rights mm. in, the, in the country. Yes. So after right. the break, I continue my conversation with Terence Corrigan, the project manager at the Institute of Race Relations. Welcome back to the Big Daily Liberty Show. I am in conversation with uh, Terence Corrigan from the Institute of Race Relations. He's the project manager there and really someone who, if you are a reader of The Daily Friend, you are very well um, uh, accustomed, uh, if that's the word you're aware of, because <laughs> um, he's actually quite a very prominent voice on The Daily Friend. And I encourage you guys to read The Daily Friend. That's dailyfriend.co.za. Terence, you know... Uh, <sighs> I have a little bit of exasperation in my voice because you make the point almost time and time again in this piece uh, that really th th there is a slight, uh, if I can characterize it this way, th there's, there's a little bit of a slight of hand here because the politicians will come out mm. and say things like, yeah, you know, we take land reform seriously. We're looking to give, um, to give the land back to the people, they'll often say. Um, but the, the existing, and this is a quote from your piece, the existing draft defines expropriation as the state taking ownership, not merely depriving people of their assets. Um, right. they, they don't really say that part out, do they? Including the EFF, by the way, that actually they're <laughs> looking to confiscate the land in order to put it into the hands of the state, and then you coming hat in hand as the citizen to beg the state to, you know, mm. for a bit, a bit of land to, to eke out an existence on. We don't really hear that part from the politicians, do we? No, um, because that would uh, that would uh, complicate the the uh, say historical and moralistic narrative. Um, okay, uh, first thing I can say is that there's quite a lot of polling evidence on the South Africans are you know actually like the idea of property, and I remember uh, you know when I, when my career started in the 1990s, speaking to a um, uh, speaking to an African gentleman who was a, a veteran of the '76 uprising, and we were talking about about communism. And he said to me, you know, um, Africans are not natural communists because we have always owned property. And he says, if you want, want to see it, look at cattle. So that's, um, uh, that predated the, um, uh, uh, the arrival of, of, of white people or mm -hmm. European systems. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think the same, you know, the same goes for, um, uh, the same goes, uh, for land at least now. Um, you know, perhaps in uh, in a in a bygone age when you know it was very sparsely populated, ownership of land was a um, uh, was, was a less intense thing. But no, um, what what we are what we are seeing here is um, uh, is an attempt by the um, by the state to empower itself. Now there are some I think who some some in the ANC who I think are motivated by let's say a. Um, uh, a drive to introduce a kind of communist people's democracy, and there are others. Who see this as uh, the sort of mighty Asian developmental state? Mm. Um, uh, neither um, are particularly are particularly um, uh, uh, popular, even amongst the ANC or, for that matter, the EFF support base. Mm -hmm. um, people people generally want to own what they live on, um, but uh, if you know, once you do that, you start to create um, uh, individual so individual sovereignty in the, the conditions for individual autonomy. And it becomes a lot more difficult to use this for patronage. That's right. Um, and that's 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 very important. But you know, um, even if they, you know, if this was going to, we're going to further some sort of, uh, as I say, uh, developmental state agenda. You would need a developmental a state capable of doing that, which we just don't have. Um, forget it; it doesn't exist. Um, and you know, until the ANC, ch you know, changes uh, a course like literally 180 degrees. Mm. 
um, there's there's no possibility of that of that existing. So it's, uh, so it's quite laughable. Um, you know, the, there's been, there's there's been a case that, that that reached the courts last year and um, uh, was resolved uh, just actually a few weeks ago. A guy by the name of David Rakase. Um, yes, yes. In, in Limpopo, right. Now, this is this is a guy who should be a poster boy for um, uh, for uh, a successful land reform um, or, or successful, you know, um, uh, black agriculture. He was um, uh, he he acquired a piece of land from the old Mapudetswana government in the early nineties and uh, built quite a successful farming uh, livestock farming endeavor on it. Um, in about two thousand and two, I think he, he he said he wanted to buy it. The government at the time was was uh, uh, was sa- um, uh, was selling and agreed, uh, but the wheels turned slowly. I mean, here the weaknesses of our state, and basically he didn't. Ha- um, they came back to him in sort of 2011 and said, "Oh no, no, we've changed our mind. You you can't have it. You can have this sort of long term lease, which turned out to be five years, and then it was like one month by month." Um, and uh, his farm was, uh, was actually invaded by, um, uh, by a group of people. He reckons that there was some sort of uh, collusion going on behind the scenes. And he tried to have them evicted. Um, but he, that was thrown out because he didn't, he didn't have locus standi in the matter. He wasn't the, the owner. Mm. The state like prevaricated for two years and then eventually you know, went to court. So I understand he, he still has this problem. When it went to court, uh, the the decision was absolutely scathing, and they made this point. You know, the government talks talk, talks this game about uh, you know uh, land reform and whatever. There's a lot of historical pain behind it. Yet here you have a guy who you know who's ticked every box, um, and has done it successfully. And you're saying, uh, well, no. Um, Anyway, um, it was very, very enlightening what what the government's papers in this case said, that it is their policy that, quote, black farming households and communities should not have ownership, but have long-term leases. That's crazy. Now, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, and, and I mean, you know, this, this didn't come out of the Avia Bureau or anything. This came out of the <laughs> Department of Rural Development and Land Reform. That's crazy. Um, you know, uh, how... how you know, it's it's it's. Uh, I don't know. Words words fail me, and they seldom do. Absolutely. Um, and, 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 and I mean, Tara, I'm, I must interject because I, I we're in our last three minutes, uh, really, and right. I want us to get into. You know, you, you, you've set the case out quite aptly, I think, around the dangers of this, and you even gave us this example of mm. David Rakase, who I'm hoping to have on the Big Daddy Liberty Show to to show viewers the story. But you guys have been an important right. voice in actually saying there are. Uh, preferable ways of achieving land reform, strengthening property rights. Can you just maybe your top mm. five um, or just top three interventions on how we can get this right um, according to the IRR? Right. We need to, um, uh, we need to shift the focus from, uh, from land as a kind of historical or, um, or political issue to farming. This is particularly about uh, uh, rural land reform, urban land reform, slightly different, but that, that, that that's the big conceptual shift. Um, we need to um, uh, we need to uh, make it possible for um, uh, for aspiring farm, uh, um, uh, farmers to get onto their land and to um, uh, to become owners. Um, I think you know where where you have customary tenure that's also a bit more difficult, and I think there's intermediate steps you might have to go through. But uh, you know uh, we 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 need to we we need to start taking the creation of commercial farming. Uh, seriously, um, a small to medium scale with, uh, you know, like sky's the limit expansion um, ideas. 
encourage the the, the ambition. Um, we need post settlement support, which is um, I don't think the government is capable of providing it. But I think funding uh, for um, uh, for a proper extension service, possibly managed by someone like AgriSA, would be a good idea. And there has to be a very, very strict um, uh, approach towards uh, towards land invasions and the violation of property rights, mm. because this is something that someone like David Rukasi had to fa- had to, um, uh, uh, had to face. And we've seen this actually with a lot of land reform programs. You get a community a community or a group of people who take who take some sort of ownership or residence. And they find that there's a rival group that show, that shows up, and it, it often just comes down to you know who's pointing who's pointing the bigger guns. Um, you know we need we 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 need to 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 retain law and order um, uh, uh, very firmly. Absolutely. And finally, and equally important, rural infrastructure. We need the roads and the water supplies and whatever to um, uh, to make that possible. Absolutely. Terence, thank you so much. Um, super appreciate that. Uh, Terence, of course, you can find his writing and analysis and opinion on the Daily Friend website. That's dailyfriend.co.za. Um, Terence, just very briefly before you go, there's actually a comment that we got here yeah. um, from D, uh, who says, this sounds exactly like the beginning of the Soviet Union. And then they all starved. Um, that's a comment from D, um, which, I, again, underpins the point you're making, that there's an ideology being driven behind all of this. Yeah. But, um, but Terence, I, I must, I must um, say thank you to you. And um, after the break, I do what I do on the show all the time, which is to tell you who the Moomish of the week is this, um, uh, this week. All right, guys, we're in the final few minutes of the show. And uh, as usual, I look at the news week ahead very briefly, what I think will be an issue that I tackle going forward. And of course, who the moomish of the week is. But um, let me begin here. There's two distinct issues that I think I'm going to be keeping an eye on. Number one is the the growing um, furor, if I can call it that, uh, you know, stemming from the press conference uh, held by Cricket South Africa, where uh, one of their players, Andy Lungi Lungi excuse me, um, star a star fast bowler in the team, basically argued, you know, that the team should owe some sort of fealty to the Black Lives Matter movement, taking his cue, of course, from the game he watched in England between the English and I think the West Indies, uh, who were donning you know, a, uh, I think some sort of branding, Black Lives Matter branding on them, and they did a whole, you know, dog and pony show of, you know, taking a knee and all that stuff. Th- there's a conversation to be had around this because I've always said that there is a very big difference between stating, rightly, that you believe that black people's lives matter, indeed all people's lives matter, versus saying you support the Black Lives Matter movement, which if you actually look at who they really are, their stated objectives, they stand firmly against things like the values that I stand for, for instance, which was, which is, which are, excuse me, of faith, love of flag, love of country, that is, and uh, family. They stand firmly opposed to these principles, and it's something we need to keep an eye on because it's playing itself out in the politics today, where essentially you have these mobs of self-righteous. Um, self-appointed language and thought police who hide behind these movements like Black Lives Matter in order to police dissent and to police free speech in a society. So this is something I need to I need to say I'll be keeping an eye on and I'll probably do a show on the Big Daddy Liberty show. That's the one you can find on YouTube and Facebook uh, this week um, as I look at this issue and really unpack what, what Black Lives Matter, the organization, really is versus people who actually believe rightly that black people's lives in 
indeed all lives matter. So you can look out, you can look forward to that on the Big Daddy Liberty Show this week as we tackle this issue of essentially race nationalism that is being shrouded um, as you know these progressive movements. Where it's actually ethnic nationalism that's being punted. Uh, another one uh, we need to keep an eye on. Or rather, no, 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 let me get to the interesting bits. Um, who is the Moomish of the week? Uh, <laughs> uh, this one, I think, is well-deserved, which is a bit sad because this person's actually done relatively well in terms of responding to COVID-19. But I'm sorry, in this instance, he deserves the title of Moomish of the Week. I'm talking, of course, about the National Minister of Health in this country, Dr. Zwilimkiz, excuse me, including, of course, his Eastern Cape counterpart, who this week he's actually backpedaled on what was initially his support of this 10 million rand scooter project. Um, and really... He's right to backpedal on it, um, but he must take the egg on his face because even at the time when he was celebrating this as wonderful and look at how the Eastern Cape government is innovating, people were asking him the questions, how practical really and how legal really is it to expect someone you know, who may be dying of an illness, very sick and poor, um, why are we subjecting them to essentially the, the, the indignity of riding shotgun on a scooter when we have the kind of money to be able to fund and, and provide proper ambulances and proper skilled EMS personnel to look after and care for poor people in this country? Which begs the question, really, is it not time that we have a conversation around the desperately needed reform in health care provision in this country, placing more of the power, placing more of the resources into the hands of poorer people so that they can make their own decisions around how they access quality health care. So that's um, unfortunately something that saw Dr. William Kieser for me taking the mantle of the Moomish of the week. What was he thinking? Oh my goodness. And with that being said, thank you so much for listening to the Big Daddy Liberty Show, the podcast, which of course is syndicated right here on Chai FM. Hopefully it'll be on more radio stations across the country. Remember, you can follow me on all my social media. That's Big Daddy Liberty on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And uh, you can watch the Big Daddy Liberty Show every Wednesday, or Blacks Only every Wednesday that alternates um, on the Big Daddy Liberty Show, the YouTube page at 8 p.m. And of course, on Sundays, you have Late Nights with Big Daddy Liberty at 9 p.m. So thank you very much to you for listening. And um, thank you to the production team at Chai for helping put together the show. My name is Big Daddy Liberty. I will see you next week, Friday, on the Big Daddy Liberty Show. Chai FM, your station of choice.